Welcome to Rusk, insights on rehabilitation medicine, a top podcast featuring interviews with thought leaders in the field of PM and R from Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Medical Center and other prominent rehab medicine institutions. Your host for these interviews is Dr. Tom Elwood. He will take you behind the scenes to look at what is transpiring in the exciting world of rehabilitation research and clinical services through the eyes of those involved in making dynamic breakthroughs in healthcare. So listen, learn, and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to another episode in the Rusk Rehabilitation Podcast Series. Today's interview is one of many that will make it possible to learn about developments in the field of rehabilitation aimed at improving the lives of patients. I am honored to have as today's guest, Dr. Joan Gold, who is a clinical professor in the Department of Rehabilitation at Rusk Rehabilitation, NYU Langone Health. Dr. Gold, thank you for being here today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be back with you. Thank you. Oh, you're most welcome. Dr. Gold's area of specialization includes the pediatric disorders, cerebral palsy, and spina bifida. In her own words, she has stated that she's had the pleasure of watching her patients and learning from their strengths for a little more than 45 years. Her medical degree is from the State University of New York Downstate Medical Center. She completed her residency in physical medicine and rehabilitation at the NYU Medical Center and her residency in pediatrics at Beth Israel Medical Center. She's board certified in the following three areas, pediatric rehabilitation medicine, physical medicine and rehabilitation, and also pediatrics. So Dr. Gold, roughly how many adults in the U.S. today are affected by cerebral palsy, and roughly what percentage of patients at risk would be adults treated for this condition? It's difficult to get a specific adult population, but probably the incidence of cerebral palsy is about 800,000 patients in the United States, including both children and infants. Adults as well. And for the benefit of our listeners, how does the life expectancy of adults with cerebral palsy compare to individuals who do not have it? Much better than we would think offhand. The average patient with cerebral palsy has a 90% chance of having a typical life expectancy equivalent to somebody without a physical disability, which is very encouraging. And when did you see that change occurring? It obviously wasn't always this way. Let's say 30, 40 years ago, did they live as long, or is this a more recent development? I think it hasn't been tracked early on. Likely with the increased longevity of the infants and very low-weight babies, uh, that has improved it. But we also have begun probably in the past 20 to 25 years to realize that people age with a disability and are looking slowly to provide services to that population as well. Now, mostly we're going to be talking about adults with cerebral palsy, but going back to an earlier stage, children with CP eventually will have to make the transition from pediatric to adult care, where they're going to be expected to develop independent self-management skills, along with the ability to communicate effectively with members of a new healthcare team. Please describe that process from the perspective of any challenges they might face and how these can be overcome effectively. Basically, the challenge is the time that's allotted to it. You can't put a play on the first day that you decide that you want to produce one. You have to have many rehearsals. 
And so for our children, some of whom may have learning problems, and for their parents who have been jealously guarding their children and trying to protect them, to let them out into the real world and let them fend for themselves is a very hard process emotionally. And you need a lot of dress rehearsals. So while the transition process usually occurs at 18 to 21 years of age, uh, when pediatric care is outstripped, the rehearsal probably begins at about 13 or 14. Now, it's hard to learn how to talk in front of a child and to give requisite information without frightening them. But if we give it a little bit at a time and build on it, then that person, once they get to be adult, dependent on their cognitive status, will be able to say, yes, I had that surgery when I was 15, and the purpose was to put my foot flat on the floor. And then I had the next surgery a year later because my back was curving, and now I stand straight. So you give a, impart a little more information every time so that the person can learn it and relate the information to their care providers. The other concept, which has been made much easier by having access to computerized records, is for the family and the patient to develop a healthcare passport where you have relevant information and surgeries listed. And the patient can either go with a computer printout or a small uh, loose-leaf notebook, if anyone knows what that is anymore, with the information, copies of x-rays, so that one doesn't have to rediscover America to get the, the background information. And it's all clear. It facilitates a problem-oriented record, and it facilitates follow-up in a much better way. And if we start that early, it becomes a good habit, a good routine that probably should be applied to all of us. And generally speaking, are these children in regular classrooms and schools as they're growing up, or is it more a specialized form of education that they'll participate in? It's probably about 50-50. If you look at the incidence for developmental delays in cerebral palsy, it's around 50% or so. Some of the children may have learning problems, which does not mean that they're not intelligent. It just means they need special skills in order to maximize their abilities. The intent of the law for special education is that children should be placed in the least restrictive environment possible. So we hope that's a fact. Overall, it's about 50-50. Now, getting back to the adult patients again, among those whom you treat, what kinds of health problems do they tend to experience that could involve musculoskeletal motor functional, cognitive, or communication ability types? I think it's, it's sort of surprising that so many problems occur because when you look at the definition of cerebral palsy, it's a static encephalopathy. In other words, something happens to the brain of that individual either before birth, during the birth process, or in an early period after. And that doesn't change. But with the impetus of growth and, and aging, different problems occur uh, within that context. And then we have other sort of special problems that may harken back to the actual process of developing cerebral palsy that have an effect through life. And that, that's very interesting to me because it's newly acquired information that we're only just learning about. So probably the preponderance of problems or the most obvious ones are the musculoskeletal problem. And it comes from wear and tear on joints that are not used in a biomechanically correct way, fatigue, pain, 
the cumulative effects of being on chronic medication, be it for antispasticity or seizures and other factors. Weight and age also play a role. And what a decline which would be normally tolerated well in someone without a physical disability may make its effects more manifest than somebody who had a pre-existing difficulty. But superimposed upon that are unique problems and also the lack of healthcare resources that are available to people with disability. You just mentioned fatigue. What can be done to offset its effects among these patients? Good medical care, good nutrition, learning rest periods. Usually the true intervention for cerebral palsy in terms of physical therapy is stopped when the person completes school. So it's given in a school setting usually until 18 to 21 years, and then things fall apart. But if we insinuate good health habits and have the patients do home exercise programs and stretching and get involved in the community and swimming and adaptive physical programs, then strength is generally maintained for longer periods of time. Some of the surgeries that are done specifically selective dorsal rhizotomy, which are done on the spine to decrease lower extremity tone, may actually have a protective effect on the effects of aging. And those patients don't have a deterioration of gait in their 20s. They have gotten so far to about mid-30s plus without regression in their ambulatory status. So that's been an exciting development as well. The presence of dystonia may result in intermittent muscle contractions. If that condition happens to affect the oral and the neck regions, will the ability to swallow be impaired, for example? And if so, what kinds of treatment would be available for that kind of situation? Dystonia is actually very interesting, and um, maybe some of the puzzlement is getting a bit clearer. The dystonia is not always manifested early on in childhood, and why it it suddenly comes in a static condition later in life, we're not certain. Maybe it's a a longer-term effect of early basal ganglia damage that occurs in adulthood. The dystonia, we usually see more problems in a musculoskeletal sense. In other words, because of the adventitious movements of the head causing uh, a cervical osteoarthritis or gait patterns causing lower back problems and uh, lumbar disc disease. And that may require therapy. It may require medications to assuage a movement disorder. Uh, It may require baclofen, which is somewhat more effective in dystonia than some of the antispastic medications are. And then one can look specifically at the feeding and swallowing problems. Sometimes the medications might help a bit, but it's probably best to keep in mind that these problems can occur. And just as we would do a feeding study, a video fluoroscopy study in a child who is having feeding problems, sometimes we have to invoke that privilege in an adult population as well. And sometimes there's not much to do but change the diet to downgrade a diet from somebody who is eating a normal a diet with crunchy foods, one might soften the consistency of the foods. One might recommend not giving thin liquids like water, but thickening and, and giving people nectar thick 
types of drinks, which are more easy to swallow without misdirection of food, without the food or the liquid getting into the respiratory tree. And sometimes I've had patients who with dystonia also have difficulty speaking. And later in life, they may need to be provided with a communication device that earlier had not been required. If any additional physical deterioration occurs in adulthood, what impact can it have on more subjective domains, such as quality of life and their mental health? I don't think it's been quantified. People who are physically challenged don't always have the best quality of life as an adult to begin with. And I think when you have times where you're spending more time going to the doctor, more time sitting rather than standing, because probably about 25% of the patients who were ambulatory upon maturity by time they're in their early 40s have lost that ability. Obviously, it makes you sedentary, more isolated, less apt to be engaged in employment and in interpersonal relationships. So trying to get over that or plan around it is obviously critical. I guess a related question based on what you just said is to what extent are these patients able to participate in physical activities earlier? You mentioned swimming and, and stuff like that, which would be beneficial. And, and if they can do so adequately, what kinds of impediments such as lower motor functional levels could prevent participation in these kinds of physical activities? I think you can adapt the activity to the patient. They could do seated activities. They could do wheelchair racing. Uh, there's an Achilles track club and agencies like that. There's adaptive sailing. So if you look for it, there are opportunities, but they're probably limited by finances. As you're aware in the recent headlines, even the Special Olympics is a fallen prey to economic constraints lately. So we'll have to hope that People are generous and kind and creative, and that as part of our transition process, we teach patients to go forth and learn exercises and doing things in the community with their friends as a habit rather than something unusual that we praise. Similarly, to what degree do these patients engage in social participation, such as work, family, and recreational activities? Work is not so good, and it's not always on the matter of cognitive uh, abilities. The patients that usually do the best as as a physical classification are those patients with hemiplegic or where they look like they've had a stroke where one side of their body is affected because those patients are 98, 99% ambulatory, even though the, the gait pattern isn't normal they're pretty good community ambulators and they can get where they're going, go to work and come back. But probably the employability rate is like less than 40%. Even in patients who may be very well schooled, they may not have the stamina to work an entire day. They may need job sharing. And what's the other threat is an external threat is patients who have that level of uh, being physically challenged need to have some of their resources, their home health aid, their Medicaid benefits and such remain in place. And working while it's exciting and you want people to go out in the world, they sometimes 
suffer so much from a small income, they lose their ability to get the home health aid services and the Medicaid and their equipment. And it's so incredibly costly that sometimes it's sort of forced that they don't work. They have to be, they're almost forced to be sedentary by the economic realities. And we probably need to look to change laws. Many parents struggle to buy a home that's wheelchair accessible for their child so that the child could remain in the home as an adult with a caretaker if needed and keeps a home and be in a happy and accessible surrounding. And yet if they deed the house to the adult patient, they lose their other benefits. So there are a lot of legal reforms that probably have to go along with this as well. Dr. Gold, I'm going to conclude part one of this interview by thanking you for sharing your insights with our listeners about several important topics pertaining to the rehabilitation of adult patients with cerebral palsy. A second part of this interview will be made available on a separate occasion, and our listeners are invited to access it also. Thank you for having me. Thank you again for joining us. You can learn more about Rusk at nyulangone.org slash Rusk. Also, be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter at Rusk Podcast.